Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey everybody, today's episode of Other People is brought to you by Squarespace, an all-in-one platform that makes it simple for you to create your own professional website or online portfolio. Over at Squarespace, you'll find an incredible range of customizable designs with over 20 templates to choose from, including a new template called Forte. Along with these templates, you'll find a wide range of style options so you can make your site look exactly how you want it to look. And hey, did I mention that Squarespace now offers 3D shipping visualization and that they've also launched Squarespace for musicians? There's a lot of good things happening over at Squarespace. Best of all, it's easy to use. It's fast. It's efficient. It is user-friendly. Uh, but if for any reason you need help, Squarespace has a great support team at the ready 24-7. And don't forget, these people work in an office that has been nicknamed the Care Bear Lair. You call these people, and they will gently assuage your confusion. Packages start at just 8 bucks a month, and you get a free domain name if you sign up for a year. Also, every single website design automatically includes a unique mobile experience that will match the overall style of your website so your content looks great on every device, every time. So come on, you guys. There's no time to waste. Start a trial right now with no credit card required and start building your website. Go to squarespace.com. And when you sign up, be sure to use the offer code OTHER11. Once again, that offer code is OTHER11. You do that, you get 10% off. Go to squarespace.com right now and take advantage of this terrific deal. It's an exceptional way to build or improve your web presence. Squarespace, it's everything you need to create an exceptional website. So go and create one. Oh my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jake, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right. right. All right, you guys, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is two people on the telephone. This is available in one language. Thanks for being here. How are you today? My name's Brad Listy, and I'm sitting in a chair in Los Angeles, California, as usual. And I have just experienced a moment of uh, personal weakness and quiet humiliation. So here's what happened. Do you want to know what happened? 
uh, I got a, a notice via email that the other people podcast, uh, this podcast had been mentioned in a blog on the internet. Someone had written about the podcast essentially. Uh, but here's the thing. The blog in question was uh, written in a foreign language. I believe it was Swedish. Perhaps it was Norwegian. It doesn't really matter. The point is that it was a uh, Nordic language or a Nordic seeming language, <laughs> which I did not uh, understand. So uh, I looked at this link, I clicked on the link, and I uh, viewed a Swedish blog. I scanned uh, the gibberish in front of me, and you know, obviously it was not gibberish. That was just my experience of it, as I don't speak the language. And uh, eventually, scanning, uh, you know, this gibberish, I was able to locate the words, other people, and then I found my own name. And I sat there uh, trying to make sense of what was being said about me. And it started to drive, <laughs> started to drive me a little crazy that I couldn't understand what was being said about me. So uh, ultimately I copied and pasted the paragraph from this blog and then I went to Google uh, Translator and I got a rough translation and learned uh, that the, you know, it was essentially a mixed review. The blogger uh, called the show, uh, quote, uneven, but at times fantastic, end quote. Which isn't horrible. It's not damning. It's not like a damning review. But uh, it made me feel bad. <laughs> uh, for whatever reason. I, you know, I sat there looking at this uh, translation, thinking to myself, uh, shit, my show is uneven. I need to even it out. It's too rough. It's too uh, lo-fi. It's too uh, unpolished. Sometimes it's good. Sometimes it's not as good. And people in Sweden are aware of this. And then I started to get into this thing in my head uh, where I was like, you know what? It's not my fault. Sometimes my guests just aren't that talkative. And then, uh, I, you know, it snowballed from there. I started telling myself, you know, it's hard to be uh, quote unquote on twice a week writing and producing a show and uh, interviewing people and coming up with interesting things to say and doing all of this with virtually no preparation or any sense of professionalism. <laughs> so, you know, the point is that it got a little uh, defensive. I got a little defensive. And then, uh, you know, at some point in the middle of all this, I, I paused and stepped outside of myself and realized what I was doing. And I felt stupid. <laughs> like, not only did I search out a mention of myself on the internet, which is masturbatory, and, uh, you know, it, maybe it's common. It's still not healthy. So I did that. Uh, but, you know, I did that, you know, searching myself out in, in a blog uh, that was written in a language I didn't even understand. And not only did I do that, but I, I then went to the trouble to procure a crude translation of said blog and then uh, went into uh, 
a small mental death spiral over what is essentially a very mild criticism. So, uh, should I read a bit of this review in its original form? Would you like that? Maybe I can self-flagellate by doing that. Uh, let me try my hand at uh, Swedish. Here is me reading something written about me in what I believe is Swedish, which I have no idea how to speak. <laughs> this is what generated uh, such mental turbulence within me. Are you ready? Up i podcasten, other people, Brad Listis, Ojamnam, and Bitvis, Fantastica, Intervigusery, Litovantat, Iadangafar, Tavatamar, Langt, Dabalavsnit. That was it. <laughs> uh, that was essentially, uh, that was all it was. And I, and I couldn't just leave it alone. I couldn't restrain myself. Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. My guest today is Monica Drake. Her new novel, The Stud Book, is available now from Hogarth Press. It's great to have her here, uh, and I think you guys are going to really enjoy our talk. And uh, here she is. This is Monica Drake, and her new novel, once again, is called The Stud Book. Well, I'm in um, the corner of the kitchen near the basement door where the old landline is attached to the wall which puts me behind a um, Bigfoot ladder and near an old bulletin board on a ladder back chair. Okay. So are you like, I, cause I'm, you know, before we came on, uh, I could be hiding here. If someone came in the house, I'm like in a hidden corner. Okay. So, but like, are you in like some sort of uncomfortable crouch or are you sitting, you know, sitting on a chair? Well, I'm, I'm sitting in a chair be, hidden behind a ladder that somebody needs to take to the basement. Okay. Okay. I just didn't know. Like I, it's, it sounded kind of like you were crammed into some small, like awkward space and, and you might it's be a like... little small. It's where the, the, the old pencil sharpener is affixed to the wall. 
Oh. If you've ever been in a house like that with an old old school pencil sharpener. This sounds awesome. First of all, you have a landline that's plugged into the wall. Second of all, mm-hmm. you have an old school pencil sharpener. Mm-hmm. I like mm-hmm. I like this. Like I, I feel like having a landline like that's plugged in, even a rotary dial, there's something wonderful about that. Yeah. Yeah. I also have a an antique coffee grinder from uh Amsterdam. Oh wow. It always smells like, you know, it, it has a great scent of constantly ground coffee, but it's it's clay. I mean, it's ancient. We have old technology here. So are you like an antiques person? Are you somebody who like collects these things? Um, not, not actively, but I do have, I do, you know, I keep them when I get them. Because like lately I've been having this thing where I, I am sort of like, I'm not even, I've never, I haven't had a record player since I was probably seven years old, you know, something like that. But lately I've been thinking like, I really want to just get a record player, like an old right. school record player and start listening to music that way. Because I've been looking at my music collection and it's just this like sloppy assortment of songs. It's not even records anymore or full albums. And it sort of bums right. me out, you know, I want to, I want to have yeah. things that I can hold. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Technology has it kind of makes things like music. Um, it's nice the way it becomes less material, but it also becomes kind of invisible in the house, yeah. right? When it's just on a, a electronic method. And and okay, and so and you're in Portland, is that right? Yes. Okay, and so along with your, um, you know, pencil sharpener and your landline, is it a rotary dial or is it push button? <laughs> this one has push buttons. Okay. Um, we actually have a red rotary down in the basement. Oh wow! So you do have a rotary. Well, mm-hmm. uh, with that in mind, I'm imagining that you're, are you a paper books person as opposed to an e-books person or? You... I'm, you know, I'm reading a paper, I'm reading an e-book this morning, uh, Peter Straub e-book, uh, dark matter, but I have, the house is full of paper, you know, paper books. Yes. Well, okay. So, cause I read, uh, a really interesting article recently that was optimistic about publishing, which those are always fun things to read because there's always, a, there's a lot of, uh gloom and doom and bad news that seems to be floating around, especially online. But one of the things that the, or the main point that the author was trying to make is that books have held their value, meaning that, uh, people a are willing to essentially pay 10 bucks for an ebook, $25 for a hardback brand new and about 12 to $15 for a paperback. And that's essentially unchanged. Whereas like movies and music, you know, now it's like, I just want the song. I don't want the album. I want to pay 99 cents for the song that I want, and I don't want to buy the full thing. Or I want to pay 8 bucks for Netflix and get, you know, thousands of movies and TV shows uh, for 8 bucks a month, as opposed to whatever DVDs used to cost. Whereas Right, or told it. Yeah, and then the other thing, the other point about books, in addition to them holding their price point, was that people, um, you know, the, the value that people place upon books is such that they display them in their homes. Uh, and that still sort of happens. It's books are still furniture, which for a lot you of know, people. You I, know, I read a study once that said the more books in a house when a child is growing up, the better chance that child has at college. And, and I'm making it sound generalized, but it was actually really uh, statistical. It came down to numbers, down to visual, basically growing up looking at books, being present, and um, a, a willingness to stick it out and get through college and even even enjoy it. Uh, and I always thought that was interesting. And with everything becoming digital, I'm not sure how that changes that kind of experience for a child. Um, whatever it is that's happening that makes um, the presence of books help a kid out in higher education. Well, that makes sense to me. Now, and, and I'm now thinking of like ways that I can surround my daughter with books. Right. Just visually having books in the house. It wasn't even a study on 
reading to your child or prioritizing reading, just lining the walls with books. Have you done that? Well, I grew up that way and I have that house now, you know. When I was a kid, we had one hallway that was um, really narrow and dark, mostly because the walls had bookcases on both sides, right? So you just went down this dark, long hall full of books. Okay, so and are you from Portland originally? Uh, I spent a lot of time growing up here. Um, I was born in Eugene, so a short hop over. Um, Wikipedia will tell you I was born in Detroit, but that is incorrect. I use that as an example with my students of why we can't rely on Wikipedia for research tools. Well, why, well, why don't you, can you, can't you change Wikipedia, or do you like having the mistake? I guess I just leave it there. It's okay <laughs> to have a little disinformation floating around in the world, right? Right. Um, but also, it always works for my students, because I, I make my argument why we can't just stop short at Wikipedia when, we're, when I teach research methods, right? And then I can pull that up and say, I know this fact is wrong. I'm now thinking of all the times that I rely on Wikipedia. <laughs> mm-hmm. you, know, you know, it's just the first thing you go to these days. But yeah, no, I was born in Eugene. My parents taught at Michigan State. We went back and forth a lot. I've been here for a good long time. Um, I went to high school here a little bit. So academic. So, so academic parents. They taught at Michigan State. Yeah. Okay. And they're that, both writers. They're both writers too. Of fiction. Um, fiction. My, my dad was in best American short stories back in like 1969 or something, but now he's an automotive historian. He, um, grew up a car, a car guy, you know, working on cars and he, uh, has some of the, uh, you know, he's like the the person with the only knowledge on certain vehicles, uh, old, old automotives. Um, one year the Smithsonian history detectives and a group from France all came to get information from him at the same time because he's the only person who knows the stuff. Isn't that interesting? Like I find, yeah. it, I find it interesting when people like dive down into their area of specialty and find a way forward with it professionally. Like it's just such a. It's not an overly literary field. Car people who, uh, you know, build their own hot rods. So he kind of has a good, a good uh, handle on it. Wait. So know? he he does that. He can build his own car. Well, he writes about it. His friends, you know, all the people he grew up with and all those kind of um, associates uh, customize their own cars and um, fix them up. Yeah. Okay. So, okay. He, so he hangs out with them and writes their, basically their, their life story or the story of the vehicle um, mixed in with some nostalgia here and there. You know, like this, it makes me think like it'd be really interesting to read a fiction where the protagonist is a vehicle. Because, you know, certain cars see quite a lot. Other than Herbie the Love Bug. Right, other than Herbie the Love Bug. But, you know, mm-hmm. like you see a certain car that, you know, has been through decades and or like a VW van. Like, That's Lord, right. God only knows what's happened in those things. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So are you, were your parents hippies? Did you have like a kind of like a, you know, Eugene, I'm picturing Eugene, Oregon. Well, you know, they were poets. Oh, they were man. poets. So they were more like, I guess you'd call it kind of, you wouldn't call them beat, beatniks, but they were more of that affiliation. Although we also had all the health food and uh, the big parties <laughs> of the hippies. At your house? Yeah. Okay. Okay. So here's a question for you. Uh, because you were exposed to this as a child, you saw your parents were like learned academic poets with um, perhaps less uh, traditional... Um, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, Values? Yeah. I mean, like, just like, you know, they weren't quite as square as maybe some other parents might be. Um, like, did you, when you got to be an adolescent, 
Did you have nothing to rebel against or did you find stuff? <laughs> well, I, you know, you were tapping into a huge question. Um, actually, uh, it depends on where adolescence was. And some of that, I admit, is a little con- confused for me. I don't know if I have a good handle on who I was as like a 12, 13, 14-year-old, that kind of, you know, those kind of years. I'm not sure if I had any um, self-awareness, right? Mm-hmm. Like when I was rebelling and when I just needed to do whatever I thought I needed to do, right? I mean, do you always know when you're rebelling? You know, I guess, not. I mean, I, I feel like... I have some like vague recollection of bristling against, um, you know, certain things like that my parents wanted me to do, like go to church and think this way or, you know, right. But I don't know how, but you know, hindsight's 2020 and and it's, my memory is also really unreliable. Uh, so who knows, you know, I think there there were times when my friends and I maybe thought we were, but yeah, I was raised in the Midwest. So like we would do stupid things like go to the roof of a local skyscraper, which by the way, was like 10 stories tall in Indiana. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And we would just go up there and we thought like it was some huge trans, you know, hugely transgressive act. Uh, mm-hmm. and it was, it was nothing. We were just standing up there in, well, this- you know, see, I was a, when I was a kid, I had a lot of freedom. I mean, a lot of, a lot of freedom. Like I was in a, um, in an amazing school called Ki- the kids room, which stood for kids involved in doing super stuff, which empowering right for the kids sure and in that room the the mode of teaching what they taught us was to have what they they didn't say this to us directly but i overheard it being said among the adults they taught you to have an internal locus of control meaning basically you're making your own decisions right so instead of the way kids are primarily schooled now, you go to school, you sit in a desk, you're told what to do, and then you're given a test, and you're, you're told how you did on that test, and the state worries about numbers, and maybe the schools get funded. It didn't have any of that. I, I went to school, and I tried to find what interested me, and the things that interested me were things like swamp life. There were swamps nearby, and I, and I, I could not stay out of those swamps, and I wasn't supposed to pass the school grounds, and the swamps were maybe 10 feet off school grounds, right? I mean, they were just right there. In, wait, and in, so, in, in Eugene? It, this was in, actually in Michigan. This okay. was in our back and forth uh, in Michigan. And there, there were cornfields behind the school grounds in one direction, a woods in another direction, and swamps in another direction. So no matter how big that schoolyard was, I just wanted to go to those places that were off, just off limits, right? Okay. So that's that's pretty much the only thing I should have gotten in trouble for. But I did it compulsively, especially the swamps. I would just wade into the swamp and um collect jars of creatures that that lived in the swamp and take it home to look at it under a microscope. And I always wanted to find kind of smaller and smaller universes in those floating little amoebas, little little things and um instead of getting in trouble for it, my school purchased for me this amazing Swamp. microscope that could project what I discovered on the wall. And I was allowed to give a talk at the parent teachers meeting. Oh my right? God. See, this is the way so, school should be. It seems like yes. this. So there was no, there's no question of rebelling in that kind of structure because whatever gesture you make is essentially a positive one. The, 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 the worst thing is if you, um, maybe got bored and picked on your friends, right? 
or if you just didn't do anything, if you didn't know what to do with yourself, then you got put on what was called a, a program where you would have to make commitments to yourself. Like, and you could say, I'm going to chew gum for 10 minutes. I'm going to stare at the wall. But then you actually had to chew the gum and stare at the wall. And pretty quickly, the kids who got put on those seemed to learn that they were making bad plans because they didn't really want to do what they, what they had put. You know, they thought they were getting away with something by not doing anything. But it was too hard to commit to doing nothing for long stretches of time. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And this sounds incredible. Is this what you did all the way through high school? I did this through fifth grade. But in some ways, I feel like that was my formative education because, um, you know, to bring it back to writing, to be a novelist, what you really have to do is say, I'm going to do this thing. And nobody else has to want me to do this thing. And nobody else has to look for this thing. Nobody has to care about it at all. But I've made this internal plan, right? And I'm going to see it through. And my first book took me 10 years, but I, I finished it. Uh, it took me 10 years of rewriting it. And you know, this, I, this it is took, Clown Girl? Yeah, it took me three years to write it, three more years to rewrite it, and three more years to rewrite it before I sold it, um, you know, each time getting feedback. So I, I learned a lot in the process, but I feel like I never could have done that, like just stayed with it despite um, the world ignoring it if I hadn't had that education, that early education. Okay, so did you... Um... When you when you finished it the first time after three years, did you try to sell it then and, and have no I did. Su- okay. So you had no success, then you went back to the drawing board and said I'm gonna rewrite it. I got this some thing. really I got some really great comments the first time and I had some editors, some small press editors and some editors in New York who definitely remembered it and who even contacted me later to say whatever happened to that manuscript, but I had no commercial you know, nobody bought it. Right. So I rewrote it, same story three years later, and then I rewrote it again. And then I sold it to a small press. Uh, so after 10 years, I sold it to Hawthorne Books for pretty much, you know, very little money. Um, but then the book's done great. It just keeps selling. So it's doing great. Wow. Okay. So did you, how did you manage the non-sale? Like the, re, you know, the rejection part of it? Were you devastated? Do you have a pretty um, clear head about those kinds of things? Can you stay I wasn't steady? devastated because I got really good comments. You know, they weren't just generic comments. I got comments that, that helped me keep my faith in it, I guess. That might sound a little bit corny, but it always felt like it was right on the verge of selling, right? Right. I always thought if I can just do this a little bit more and, um, you know, sometimes I, I was kind of, the earlier versions were maybe a little bit too um, subtle, right? The final product is not a subtle book and, and largely that's because I think I was being too subtle in the earlier versions. Well, it's funny. I, rem- I remember when I taught uh, creative writing, uh, I used to say, like, the note that I used to give, maybe the most of all, was just say it. Like, right. Because there's so many times when people sort of are, are being coy in early drafts, so you're trying to kind of withhold. Yeah. Or, it seems that show don't tell, and every once in a while you just need to tell it. Right. Just say what's happening. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I, wanna... well, I, I had I had originally made her less like she was a clown to me, but she was a clown the way Charlie Chaplin's a clown, right? Which oh. is um, not full on classic clown. It's more, you know what I mean? It's ordinary clothes that are ill fitting and stylized, you know. Uh, and in the end, I pushed her right into classic clown gear because the readers seem to need that those kind of big cues. Okay, That's you know, those kind of changes. Sure. So uh, I want to back up a little bit auto, uh, or biographically because, uh, you know, it sounds like you had like an interesting upbringing in education. 
Um, so just to follow it a little bit more, you, you went through this amazing elementary school education program, which formed you essentially. I think so. Yeah. I had a, I had kind of a similar, I had a year that I think formed me or had like a bigger impact Mm -hmm. than others. My sixth grade year, Mm -hmm. uh, was really huge because we had moved and I had like, uh, you know, an English teacher who was really good. Oh, that's fortunate. Uh, It's a hard year well yeah i mean especially when you're in a new school and you've moved and stuff so it's just Mm -hmm. you know it stands out but um from there uh you know you go into junior high high school are you a writer then is it something that was apparent no 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 i wasn't writing at all and um i did you know i transitioned into junior high like as you said sixth seventh eighth and um I think that was, a, it's nice that you're interested in this. I don't want to talk too much about this. You know, it's kind of dull, but I, I would say those were, those years I was pretty quiet and, and pretty, pretty bored and maybe a little alienated because um, it was hard to transfer from the freedom and support and community of that other, the kids, pro, kids room into um, a conventional school with desks and butt bells and things. Um it, it just didn't interest me very much. I think I sort of shut down for three years, you know, just waited it out. But another friend of mine who made the same transition into a neighboring middle school had the same struggle, but instead of shutting down, she kind of, maybe she acted out. Um, but she was actually told that she was brain damaged. Right? Really? I mean, because she sort of was too much. And I think maybe that's part, we, we had different ways of coping with that transition, Right. Um, she's not brain damaged. She's brilliant. She teaches college now and she's a creative person, but, um, you know, that's how, that's how hard that transition was from a really dynamic, empowering, active situation into the the conventional system. Right. Well, yeah. I mean, cause I look back on it. I mean, it was, I went to a conventional schools all the way through where it was just like, go to class, the bell rings, you sit down, you do your work Mm -hmm. and, Mm-hmm. You know, I was so worn out by it by the time I was 18. I was, like, mm-hmm. I was, I mean, I ran out of gas. I was a really good student until about, you know, my junior year. And then I just ran out of gas. I, and I remember feeling that way. Like, I can't do this anymore. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Know, it wears you down. Well, you know, that's, that's how I felt my junior year, too. I felt like I can't do it anymore. And to tell you the truth, I quit. I quit going junior year. You did? Yeah, I did. I graduated through the mail. Okay, so... I just bagged it junior year. You just got out. So what did you do? Well, I ended up going... I went to college eventually. I went to one college and then quit and went to another. It just took... You know, I probably should have just taken a year off, but... um. That's what I think. But yeah, I mean, junior year, I can relate to that feeling of like, I can't do this anymore. Well, and I didn't, you know, because I've said that... I've said this on the show before, so I don't mm-hmm. want to like uh, beat this drum too much. But, uh, you know, I really feel like a gap year... Because in some, mm-hmm. I feel like in some countries and cultures, that's kind of a normal thing. Like I, I would have benefited hugely from just like having a year to like go work somewhere, maybe go abroad, work at some youth hostel or <laughs> I don't know, work on a farm, something, you know. And there just, should be some ideal way to use that year. And I don't know what it would be exactly, but, you know, it might even be organized. It might even be institutional. You know, it might even be, you know, something like college, but not college. It's like, I, you know what I mean? It might be some. I just want to go to your elementary school. I think that's yeah. where I should go. <laughs> I know. I know. That I, was the best thing. I'll go have that. I'll go play in the swamp. Let them. Well, I've, I've, I've put together a creative writing program down at the school where I teach now. Uh, the Pacific Northwest College of Art in Portland. And the writing program is a mix of visual arts and writing arts. And I think that the, the you know, the the ideals, I'm going to say ideals or ideas, 
that I learned in elementary school are still with me largely. And when I built this program, I built in a lot of room for the students to define writing the way they want to, meaning they can define it um, in the in the sense of things like books and poetry and fiction, nonfiction, or they can write for um, other electronic media. You know, they can write for multiple screens. They can write various deliveries. They can write sketch comedy. It all fits in under the heading of writing. They can write single words and project them on, you know, buildings if they want to. And and that still fits in the broad uh, banner of writing. So you have that kind of latitude, like experimentally? Well, you mean for the program? Yeah. Yes. That's mm-hmm. awesome. Because I was just, yeah. you know, what it was making me think is that, and, and maybe this is uh, applicable more to, um, you know, high school, junior high, elementary school than it would be to a, a college liberal arts school or, or program. But it feels like when you try to get experimental in terms of your approach to education, um, there can be a lot of resistance to that. You know, there's from, like a, from the institution or from um, students. Well, no, from the institution, maybe from mm-hmm. pa- parents who might get sketched out if the thing isn't regimented and familiar mm-hmm. or, or whatever. But, mm-hmm. I mean, not that there aren't good things happening in schools, but I think that there's a lot of room to improve. And I, I think that, you know, innovative approaches and trying things out, like, I guess I'm wondering where that would happen. Like, does it happen well, on the fly in the classroom or are there laboratories where you can test this stuff out? The way, the way this program works. And, and I did, I had to get this through all the hurdles, you know, it's an accredited institution. So I had to make it through the governing bodies, right? Uh, I can't just say, this is what we're going to do and let's have fun. It has to get through standardizing um, systems. But uh, the way it works is um, freshman year is a foundation year and it looks very similar across the board, although there's room for a couple electives. Um, but it's a, it's a conventional art, it's art school. It's conventional art school. So you have drawing and basic design and some art history along with English composition, and then there's a writing class. Um, Sophomore year starts getting more into the writing classes, but they still look pretty much um, like college classes but with some art classes on the side. But by junior and senior year, you can really build your own – you can really define what you're doing and it might have to do with video or audio or sound or multiple screens or projections or books, you know, novel length books or poetry or songs. So junior, senior year, you can really just make it your own. Okay. So this begs a question because we talked earlier about your um, embrace of eBooks or how you feel about, you know, paper versus electronic, but it sounds like Mm -hmm. based on the curriculum that you've built that, uh, you know, you're you're open to experimentation, and you're not necessarily a traditionalist in the strictest sense of the word when it comes to literature and art. Like you like, so well, I I've I've been teaching at this art school for 13 years, and I and I love it. Um, back when I was an undergrad, I actually took some night school classes through the same institution, you know, a long time ago. Um, and I feel like my sensibility is very much in line with with the school. Um, for my own work, I like making novels. Right, which are traditional, largely. I mean, I'm not saying the novels are traditional, but as a form, say we're going to have words on the page, we're going to read from left to right, we're going to have chapters, right? Those are pretty traditional things. Right. Um, but I'm always interested in and open to uh, people who who break up those conventions. And, and I have some interest in doing those things myself, too. But what I've been working in for years is, is novels that 
that use these forms, you know, in, in ways that people recognize as novels. Um, but I love, like one thing that I love are, oh, I'm sorry, I think someone's calling in. We'll, we'll ignore that. I hope that doesn't click on your side. No, it's fine. Um, okay. I, I love projections on walls. I, I love the way you can project a word on a building and just the combination of the single word in the building creates a different message, right? The two together. So that's one of my, um, just one thing that interests me. Um, I like the idea of, of temporal graffiti, right? Graffiti itself is illegal, but um, projecting a word on a wall is not illegal. And the police actually, as far as I can tell, aren't sure how to handle it because all you have to do is shut down the generator, close the van, the projection's gone. Yeah, I was going to say, what do they do? Have you ever been in a situation where you're out there by the van and the cops show up and it's... Well, I haven't been, but I know I know um, a colleague of mine is very good at handling that situation when it does arise. She's very good at being the person in charge and talking everybody through it, and it's fine. <laughs> Doing some shadow yeah. puppets, like officers, yeah. this is going to yeah. be <laughs> I mean, nothing has actually been damaged, right? There's nothing that's actually even been affected. And what, kind of wor- um, what kind of words are we talking about? Well, you can put it, I mean, you can put anything you want. You can put anything you want. You can, um, just anything you want, really, or even images. I know, but I mean, is it like subversive stuff? Is it just like the word vagina on like, you know, some oil? It, it certainly could be, or it can be even self-promotion, or it can be creative, um, just thought-provoking, right? Right. Uh, it's a way, like a billboard is a very expensive thing. And most of the billboards are owned by... Um, What's it called? Clear Channel or Comcast? Right. You see, I never. What's that? I always see like Clear Channel, like in the small in small print on the bottom corner of the billboards. You know. Right. So the when we think about things like freedom of speech or freedom of information, I think it's easy to forget that we're just walking through cities that um, the same media empires own the right to to put anything on you know on these billboards, and that it costs a, a fortune. Um, so if you're suddenly just projecting even onto a blank billboard, you can put your own message there. Well, yeah, I mean, that, I, I find like this kind of thing exciting, uh, because I like the idea of, of making literature as art public in the same way that like graffiti art might be public, you know, where, that's right. and also to, to make it a little bit subversive and unexpected and in people's environment, you know, that's right. And so... I think that's kind of interesting. I'd be, in, you know, I'm, I'm wondering what like technology will allow for, you know, in the future, and in, in terms of this, you know, are there going to be new technologies that might make this uh, even more dynamic? Like, will will you be able to like project um, a high definition video on the side of a skyscraper with your phone? That's right. <laughs> that's know? right. Yeah, you probably will. I mean, I don't know, but. Um... Yeah, it's kind of fun to think about, isn't it? Yeah, well, and I remember reading something, and I hope this is just some sort of uh, long shot that will never happen, but I remember reading something about, uh, you know, somebody was speculating about moonvertising and how eventually corporations are going to find oh, a way Oh, my to, gosh, wouldn't that be terrible? To advertise on the full moon. <laughs> oh, my gosh, that would be just horrible. <laughs> and yet, you know, fast forward 150 years, it wouldn't surprise me. Yeah. It wouldn't yeah. surprise me. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, hopefully I won't be around to see Funny. that. Right. 
Uh, okay, so you so said, they'll learn how to save your life forever, just so you can stay here and see that. Right, right. They will <laughs> your, your health insurance will make you stay alive. I'll just. I just like, heard they were going to have. Uh, in, they're improving the batteries and pacemakers, so I think your pacemaker will just keep you alive for another well, 150 years. Well, they uh, Dean Kamen, I think that's his name, that futurist. Um, you know, he's predicted a lot of things correctly, but. I've seen him on like the Bill Maher show and, you know, he's on TV every once and again. Bill Gates is a big fan of his, but he's like this Mm -hmm. guy. His specialty is like predicting future trends and he's an MIT guy and he's, you know, kind of a brilliant guy, but he takes like 150 vitamin supplements every single day because I want to say he's like 60 or something. And he believes that um, we're like 15 or 20 years away from the the pivot point where, you know, radically extended lifespan is going to happen. So he's trying to stick around for it, but uh, you know, I have some reservations about being 200 years old. You know, <laughs> I know for some reason that idea. I mean, death is a scary prospect, but the idea of keeping everybody on on Earth, we we would just pile up. I mean, humans would just pile up. Well, that theme. I mean, I feel like that theme is sort of touched upon in your books, right? I mean, it is bringing <laughs> bringing people to an already crowded planet. I think about this, like my wife. And I have a young child and I look around and it's, you know, it's like, what, like, what does that mean to bring somebody here? And I know. is it the right thing to do? And how do I do this in a way that's responsible? And how do I prepare, uh, you know, my child for what, what potentially awaits, which not all of which might be, um, roses, shall we say, if like yeah. the, if environmental catastrophe unfolds the way that many are predicting it will and so on and so forth. Like, is that part of what drove you to the page, you know, in that's exactly what that book's about. That's exactly what that book's about. I had my daughter and, um, I, uh, you know, took her to the zoo like every parent does. And all those animals up there are completely endangered. They're dwindling. They are, trying to breed them enough to keep them alive. Um, but, you know, we're, we're entering into what, uh, what is his name? O.E. Wilson. Is that, do I have that right? Oh boy. I don't know. The, he, he termed it the, um, oh, what is his name for? The era of loneliness, basically when humans are the only dom- the really the only species and everything else gets killed. Um, you know, we're down to, what is it, the last two? Of, there's a certain kind of rhino. I think they're now breeding brother and sister because that's all we've got left for well, viable. The white rhino, the southern white rhino. I just, I, sh- I only say this because I just took my daughter uh, to the zoo this past weekend. and We were on, like, one of those trains, and the, we, we they have, like, two of the only southern white rhinos or something like that in existence. Mm-hmm. They're in the single digits. It's like some... some right. You know. All the rhino. I mean, the black rhino, is that the one that was officially extinct recently? Oh my god! Uh, I don't know. I just—I would have to look it up. Yeah, but I know they're using their. You know, their people think that their tusks or whatever are medicinal, and you know, right. that's not the case. Right. Yeah, I tried to fit that kind of thing into the stud book. Um, the the book, I worry sometimes that it uh, will be overlooked as like a book about women and babies, as though it's just like, oh, women just have to have babies, you know. But it's really <laughs> meant to be kind of a more of an environmental. Um, you know, comedy, but raising these questions about the responsibility of having more, more babies on a crowded planet. Yeah, uh, well, I've I'm, given away I've given away two thousand condoms with the stud book uh, logo on it, and um, or the cover. You know, the cover of the stud book printed on the front of a condom. Two two thousand, and out of two thousand condoms, nobody has asked me about like population control, right? No one. You know what I mean? It's still like yay babies. Well, I mean, yeah, but the thing, okay. 
And I hear you because I have those same thoughts. And uh, what's going to like, how are we going to allocate resources, especially if like uh, climate change escalates the way that it looks like it's going to, you know? And so oh, here, it's, you know what I just saw? It's Sumatran rhinos. They're breeding brothers and sisters at the Cincinnati Zoo. So, I mean, all of these rhinos are on their way out. White rhino, black rhino, Sumatran rhino. That's, that's sad. We just uh-huh. said there was a baby rhino at the uh, zoo and it was really cute. I mean, well, good. Yeah, there's a good. There's For a, what it's worth. Yeah, they're, yeah. Br- they're breeding some at least here in captivity. Mm-hmm. But, um, but, you know, when it comes to having children and, and, and trying to figure out whether, uh, like, what's the right thing to do, and uh, I have so many different thoughts. But, like, one of the mm-hmm. things I want to talk about, because I think this is something that any parent would probably, or most parents would probably relate to. It's like how exciting it is and how much you want your children, you know, like, uh, I know there's like a biological component to that, mm-hmm. but like, I certainly mm-hmm. feel that like I was, I am, you know, I continue every day to be thrilled to have my daughter here. And like when mm-hmm. I found out mm-hmm. that we were pregnant, I was like, Oh my God, I'm how so old is your daughter. She's three. Yeah. Um, and then there's also the part, a part of me, like sometimes I'll have this thought. Okay. Which seems like at, um, cross purposes with the one I just described where I sometimes wonder if like only really, really affluent people should have children. Like you should only like, what are you doing bringing someone onto this planet? Unless like you can just like, you know, with reasonable assurances, know that they're just like locked down, taken care of. They're going to have food and shelter no matter what. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, But it's a terror. It's a terrible thing. If only the affluent could reproduce. Right. Do you know what I mean? That would be kind of a terrible, uh, in an ideal world, we wouldn't have this great imbalance of money. Right. And resources. And, you know, Hem- Hemingway said as long as we could access food, he said it a little differently, but basically as long as we can access food, we're going to be okay. And he pulled his food out of the ocean and shot it in the wilderness. And that's a different different world. And um, I feel that now, like I keep thinking about Fukushima, uh, what, you know, they're, they're going to start working on moving the rods over at the nuclear plant in Japan um, around mid-November. And uh, they are going to keep them submerged in water and try to move them from where they're housed and put them into a safer place. Because right now they're sinking into the ground and the danger of an earthquake is huge and it could potentially release apparently much more uh, um, nuclear, you know, radiation into the world than um, Hiroshima. Uh, And uh, that... I, I, I don't know. I feel like we don't have straight information on how much that's affecting, say, the life of the Pacific Ocean. Um, apparently, those rods are bent. They're not going to be easy to take out. They could break. We could have a lot of problems um, in in the ocean, right? And Hemingway recognized the importance of being able to access food without money. There shouldn't be money between you and your food. That makes sense. You should, right? you should grow it in your yard and pick it out. Like I've had this fantasy of just like somehow making enough money to just buy like uh, a house with like enough land to farm, so that like worst case scenario, you could just be farmed. You know right, right, right. Is, is that an apocalyptic thought? I can't, I can't believe Except that. Except for that, I, I hate to, I hate to 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 not rain on your farm. <laughs> I hate to rain on your parade. But I mean, with climate change, even that can be difficult because the seasons are changing so much, and the insect life is changing. Like right now, in Oregon, there's a new stink beetle that's meant to be much further south that's coming up into this area, damaging crops, and there's really no resistance to it, right? Because of climate changing climate stuff. 
Um, they're also little hitchhikers, apparently. They've, they've been brought up on other shipments of things. But, you know, it's not like you're secure just because you have the land and you say, well, I can always plant some corn. Right. Right? Well, see, now this is the other thing that I think in conjunction with that is that I need to uh, – like read up on climate change enough and, and understand like uh, geography and topography and like the science of it so that I can predict like 25 years. If I buy my farm on like a patch of like desert scrub now, like maybe a hundred years from now, it's the, it's a lush, beautiful That's farm. right. Plan ahead for your, for your daughter's uh, farm. Yeah. It's like, um, or your grandchild's. I, th- I think maybe you should buy land like in Norway or something, right? Maybe we should all be buying land in Norway. I, I, you know, I keep reading about Finland's wonderful education system. That's right. That's a good place to That's be. That's right. Uh, okay, so let's. I want to get to like you becoming uh, an active working writer. You know, because it, it doesn't sound like you were one of those people who was like writing novels as a fourteen-year-old. No, um, I wasn't at all. And so you got to college. You dropped out. You went. I'm, I'm assuming you went back and ultimately got your degree. I did. I I ended up at a uh, state school, Portland State. It's kind of a commuter school in downtown Portland. Um, I did a lot of, I worked all the time. I didn't take out any, I only took out one loan and that was $800 when I went to Europe. So my only college loan was $800. Um, I ended up going to college for almost six years total with no debt. So that was good. Awesome. And um, But it was a very I don't know what you'd call it. It was very random education and very working class, largely. I, 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 I'm not sure if that's the right phrase, but I mean, I was working at a lot of jobs, and Portland State is just this commuter school downtown that had amazing professors and a pretty amazing student pop, uh, body, but it wasn't a... Um, we had a lot of Vietnam vets at the time, and we had a lot of you know, punk rockers and runaway kids and really random collection of people that would be in any class, a lot of skateboarders and um, people who are just making their own way, you know. So it was a kind of a cool demographic to hang out in, um, but it wasn't very collegiate. It, it not, I don't mean collegiate in the sense of getting along. I mean, it wasn't like college. Yeah, it wasn't like the, you know, the, the, the quad, like playing Frisbee golf on the quad. Exactly. Yeah. No, it wasn't any of that. Uh, yeah. Okay. And so at that point, were you thinking uh, fiction or was it still ways no, off? No, I was, I was studying, you know, I took a lot of painting classes and I took a lot of art history classes. I studied visual arts as much as I could, but I never had any real competence. You know, I took drawing and basic design. Um, and I ended up, uh, with a general studies degree because I, uh, had a lot of enthusiasms and I, I actually did really well with all of them. I, I mean, I, 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 I don't, that sounded like bragging, but I mean, I just, I got into them so readily uh, and then I sort of dropped them just as fast. Like I studied psychology and I, I um, did studies on communication apprehension and um, uh, gender identification, how people feel, how masculine or feminine they feel regardless of their actual gender, you know, by issuing blind tests and um, wrote papers on that. And I had a teacher who got very excited and thought that I would do well to become a psychiatrist. And that was, that was great. And then I um, got a job up at the zoo where I studied infant, age, and elephant behavior. We had three baby elephants back then. And I spent my days watching them play basically and recording how they interacted with each other. Uh, there had not been a zoo that had three babies born in captivity all at once, so it was a brand new thing to watch them grow up together. 
um, and that was wonderful. And then I went to Europe. You know, I thought I was going to study animal behavior. I went to Europe, and I saw just all the artwork. All of a sudden, I switched my major to art history because it seemed incredibly relevant um, in Europe. And uh, and then when I came back, I got an, an internship at the Smithsonian Institution in archival studies, and I I became an archivist in the institute in the the sites program, which is the Smithsonian Institution Traveling Exhibition Service. Uh, I was actually working on the archives of the institution itself in relation to that program, if that makes sense. And I was assigned um, papers that overlapped with the McCarthy era, so I spent my time cataloging um, a lot of papers that had had to do with uh, communist threats and artists who were considered possible communists and how they were being cut from certain exhibitions. Um, and so that was really exciting. And I thought I wanted to go into things like um, art, art auctions or archival school, you know, grad school. Well, see, but this sounds yeah. okay. This, I mean, this is obviously, um, I mean, is this peripatetic the word? You know, you're kind of moving from one thing to the other. But it sounds to me like a really kind of uh, interesting and, and realistic education or, or like a realistic way to approach your, your college education because. I think the the antithesis of that would be picking a major and like deciding upon a professional track or some sort of career pursuit at like the ripe old age of 19 when almost nobody knows who the hell they That's are. That's right. That's right. So it sounds to me like this is more of an honest approach. This is like let me try on a bunch of different hats. I'm mm-hmm. you know, I'm mm-hmm. 19, the world is wide open, everything interests me. You know, I think it sounds yeah. great. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. But I appreciate hearing that validated. You can say that again anytime. <laughs> well, I mean, it seems like something that we should be advised. Like, listen. Well, it was very it was very sloppy and very undirected, but it was also it, it, they were all genuine enthusiasms and I I you know, I worked really hard at all of them. I sometimes I look back and I think why did I quit doing any of them, right? You know, what I never made it to the finish line at any of those things. But the thing that they all did have in common was strong writing skills. You know, I had to write in different forms for all of those. And um, and then after I graduated, I um, I worked some different jobs and various local things. And um, I took a writing class uh, at the, um, oh, some little, you know, adult education evening class thing. It wasn't, it wasn't even affiliated with any um, building, but it was an organization that used other people's spaces. And I took a class and then... Um, I wanted to take another writing class, and Tom Spanbauer had just moved to Portland, the writer Tom Spanbauer, and somebody said, oh, you should take his class. He's such a nice man. So I took Tom Spanbauer's class. Wait, doesn't he cost- write like the, the – doesn't he run like a famous workshop in Portland? He does now. He had, yeah. just, he had just arrived. Now he runs what's called Dangerous Writers, and um, it is very in demand and very wonderful. He's a, he's a great teacher. Um, what happened is um, I went to his class and it was being held in a, as I remembered, it was a grade school library. And we went in and there were um, those little round tables and little tiny chairs, you know, and about five or six of us sat in those chairs. And Tom came in and um, he told us that he was HIV positive and that he just wanted to write his work before he died. But he told it in a much more dramatic way than I just told it. You know, it was just such a big statement to make in that strange little atmosphere of this little library and from a stranger. I didn't know him yet, but it made writing really important. It made uh, life really important. It made this feeling that we were all mortal, that, right. that we didn't know how long we had to live and that we needed to tell our stories before we died. 
um, because that was what he wanted to do. And he made us all feel like if that was something we wanted to do, we should do it right away. It's like, it's like, it's like, Oh my God. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to die too. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It was really cool. And then shortly after that, uh, Chuck Palahniuk joined the group and, um, he and I just got a kick out of each other right away. We, We just laughed at each other's jokes and he was so nice and so encouraging. Um, so this was like pre Chuck becoming Chuck, right? Like, yes. Okay. So yes. he was, he was a new writer as well. That's right. That's right. So now yeah. are you, are you part of like, I, I, I always jokingly, cause I've spoken to, I think a lot of the members of what I refer to, um, as the like Algonquin round table of Portland where it's like Chuck and Cheryl Strayed and that's right. You're, you're a part that's of right. that group, correct? Yep. Yep, yep. So that seems that, like now it's become a pretty heady little circle of writers. <laughs> it's an amazing group. Yeah, it's amazing. In fact, I'll see them tonight. Um, tell them I said hi. <laughs> I will. I will. Yeah. Well, that's kind of where it started for me was I met Tom. I st- I was his first student who's, you know, we say first because I was the first one who stuck with it from that first group. And then Chuck joined almost immediately after. And then we've been meeting ever, ever since. At some point I went to grad school for a little while and then came back and then they were still meeting, you know, and there we broke away from Tom and just formed our own group. And then later, um, what, wait, why did, why did you break away from Tom? Was it just like a natural thing or was it? Well, Tom's is like a class that you, yeah, just a natural thing. I mean, Tom's is you pay for it. You pay money and, um, certain people get to read and Tom's in charge and you know, it's a class. Uh, ours is just a, just a workshop we just meet together. We just support each other. Right. Um, so it, does, it doesn't have the hierarchy and it doesn't have the payment. Is system. it a, is it a closed group? I have to imagine there are so many people circling that group going, can I come? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a closed group. Definitely. It yeah. Um, it's, it's about as big as it can stand to be. Uh, and we know each other's writing and each other's critique styles. So yeah, we're pretty set. It's really, it's really like a longstanding marriage to nine people. Okay. What it is. Well, right. I, yeah, when I want to ask you, because this is something that I think pe- some people do, some writers do, um, but not all, you know, because there are a lot of writers who work in sort of a lone wolf fashion and don't necessarily uh, embrace or pursue a community situation relative to their art. Um, and I wonder if you think, like, what, like, how much better is your work because of this? Do you know what I'm saying? Or is it more of like an emotional... Um, sense of support which is a real thing i mean at least in my experience like being around other no, writers. no. mine mine my writing's better it's better because um well for one thing you know who knows i mean the person i used to be you can see how i i had my enthusiasms and i wandered off right mm. so i might not have kept writing all these years if i didn't have an audience of people i love to listen to it right, right. even if you don't publish your work if you've got these people who are your friends who are smart who are funny who are interesting and you get to share your work with them. Right. I mean, that's enough to keep, to keep going. Um, but also, uh, when I went to grad school, I felt like the critique Where did you was go? very different. I went to the university of Arizona, okay. which was a big deal at that time because David Foster Wallace had graduated from there and some other big writer, you know, it was kind of a hot program at the moment. Right. Right. Um, Plus, they gave me a full ride and a teaching job, so I actually came out with money in the bank instead of in debt. Oh wow! Okay. Um, so that was a, that was a plus too. And I was interested in the desert. I'd never been down to Tucson, um, but uh, critique seemed 
um, I'm not sure what the, I've never been able to pin it, pin it down, but critique seemed, I would say, nervous and persnickety and, and also oriented toward building those kind of New Yorker style stories, you know, which we may or may not actually take pleasure in, but we have this sense of what should be happening. Like, tell me the color of the sky. Tell me what did the landscape look like? You know, tell me what was he wearing? You know, these details are not really important to me. Does that make sense? No, it make, that actually makes a lot of sense to me creatively because I'm the same way. In writing, I when I first started writing, I just had a lot of single sentence paragraphs and a lot of quick cuts, and I used to leave way too much space on the page. And it was Tom Spanbauer who told me, Monica, you don't need four spaces between this this jump in time, and you know, kind of slow down and unpack the scene. He he was always encouraging me to unpack, and um, and I think Chuck always got a you know Chuck and I always had a fondness for moving along pretty quickly on the page. Um, and the trick is to find some balance between those two, right? Well, yeah. I mean, cause I find that there's something when I get too much, when there's too much unpacking, then I think that that diminishes the imaginative act of reading. And I find it, it, it grinds me down. Like I like to have it left to the, you know, I like to have that momentum narratively, but then I also like as a reader to be able to fill in the blanks on my own, you know, don't, that's right. That's how that's I, right. right. And also sometimes I'm not sure why we're, we're, we're talking about the weather in a scene or why we're describing the city. You know what I mean? Well, yeah. I mean, um, some, sometimes I feel like it can just be like, uh, like watch me use words beautifully. You know right, <laughs> right, right. And I felt like grad school had a little too much of that going on. Um, and my writing, because I was in that environment for, for a number of years, my writing kind of slowed down. You know, I was trying to, it it, it, it influenced my writing in ways that didn't, even perhaps interest me that much, right? You're in a community and you start thinking, okay, maybe this is what I have to do. And then when I came back to Portland, I met with my writing group. Uh, I felt like I, I could just shake all that off. I could just say this, the, this group of people, they're not going to make, you know, it's just like gone. This is my tribe. Yeah, this is my tribe. And, and my, you know, my stories, I, I, I won't go into the details, but I brought a story into workshop recently and it, it made me laugh, and and there's a scene in it, and Chuck was just I I, I shouldn't even say what I'm going to say. Never mind, um, but it may keep me out of the mainstream or the literary fiction. I'm not sure, but um, but I but at least I, I I entertain myself. Well, but you know, I was I remember talking to it was either Cheryl or Lydia uh, who have both been on this show. Lydia Yuknovich is part of that group, right? Mm-hmm, that's okay. right. So, but I just remember asking because you know this this is a fascinating circle of writers, and I was. I think I was asking about how the critiques unfold and um, one of them, and I, I wish I could remember exactly who was saying that like, you know, sometimes they can get very, um, what's the word? I don't want to overstate it, but like intense, you know, because people, you know, it's obviously people are trying to give their honest responses and mm-hmm. you, know, you, you bring something in that you think is done. And, um, you know, because this group is so intimate and because the individual writers um, are also good, you know, that, you know, sometimes you can go in there with a, you know, a piece of writing and it can be like an, an emotional thing. And then you come out and I mean, have you had experiences like that where it's been really frustrating, but yet in, you know, hindsight, once, uh, you know, cooler heads have prevailed that you feel like it really made your writing better. I'm sure I've had those experiences. If I have, I've probably forgotten them, like forgetting childbirth pains, right? Um, they're gone. Right now, I'm just feeling all love and happiness, and I just expect all their opinions. What's it called? Moxite- what's it called the tocin? Uh, yes, yes, Pitocin yes. Pitocin or whatever. Right, right, right. Um, yeah, uh, I'm sure I have had those moments. Not in a while, apparently, since I'm not remembering them right now. 
Um, but I find that even when I take in work, uh, even if I even if I go in thinking maybe this is too raw or too sketched in and I won't get much feedback because it's obviously not quite finished, even then I get just great feedback that keeps me moving along. And, and sometimes feedback is just enough to say, yes, we're interested in this, you know, keep writing, right? And do you ever get people just say, like, ditch this? Is it ever like that cold? Like, stop, this is horrible. <laughs> You know, in all honesty, the only time I had that, I only had that one time ever. And that was when I brought back work from grad school. It was that one. That's what I didn't just say a minute ago. The one when I the first time back at workshop after grad school, I read my work. I got a very flat response. And Chuck looked at me and basically said, what happened? Because he'd like he liked my work before grad school. Then I was gone for three or four years. And then uh He's like, what's this? Right. I think he was looking forward. And it was so um, transforming to just see that on their faces and just say, you know what, grad school, I'll keep the best of what I learned, but the rest can just go out the window. And and just, just like getting myself back after that. Well, yeah, I mean, because you can't shoehorn yourself into a style of work. Yeah. That doesn't suit you. And I think sometimes, yeah. especially when you're trying to think of your, I mean, I fall into this trap where you're trying to think of like, what's going to sell? How do I fit myself into the greater, right. you know, you can't right. do that. It's a, it, it, you can't. And, you know, I guess like in my mind, I sort of uh, like, you know, this is something currently that I've been battling with, but it's like, you know, my sensibility, at least at this time in my life, uh, might just be way out in left field. Like, do you ever have thoughts about yourself and think to, you know, gosh, you know, maybe the kinds of stuff that I write or the kinds of things that I write and what I'm particularly, you know, interested in as an artist, you know, maybe it's just not for, you know, 10 million yeah. people. Maybe no, it's I, for... I think, I think that, um, I have my certain things I'm interested in and I think about them deeply and I mean every word that I say and then I prefer to work in an area that I consider comedy that not everybody thinks is funny. Uh, and sometimes I think, well, maybe I'm just, maybe I just have a childish streak, you know? <laughs> I think that's me too. <laughs> Isn't it funny whether when you write something or you say something that you think is hilarious and there's just like this, I, I get that sometimes you know, yeah. where people are like, yeah. dude, that's super dark or, you know, yeah. that's just not yeah. funny at all. And I'm like, this is, I just spent like 15 minutes laughing to myself about this. But, right. 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 Uh, I think they'll just have to catch up. Right. <laughs> or there's just. But there's seven billion people on the planet. Somebody's got to find it funny. That's right. That's right. Right. I'm sticking. Overpopulation's got to be good for something. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, okay. So I want to talk about uh, Clown Girl uh, briefly because it got optioned, correct, it, uh, by Kristen Wiig. It did. So it th- did. That's exciting. I, I, I'm such a Kristen Wiig. I got to say, I think that. Um, she is super, super talented as a performer and just, I think she's great. I think it will be great if she makes something of it. Um, I, I was able to get that option to get that book to her myself. Right. I didn't have an agent then. So that was pretty, uh, I was pretty happy with the whole thing. How did, how did you get it to her? Um, you know, I took two trips to Los Angeles and, uh, I met somebody who said he knew her in the business and, um, you know, just basic, just basically I, I was able to just make that work. Just handed him the work, just the handoff. Yeah. yeah. I, I got Hawthorne to mail a book to this, um, man I met who got it to her. And I just, I was so happy that she clicked with it and she took a real interest in it. Um, in all, to put all, you know, honesty on the table right now, the option has recently 
um, lapsed and she did not re-up it, but she's not far away. It's still, the wheels are still slowly turning. Technically, it's not in her hands at this moment, but... Um, so if any, yeah. other, if any other SNL alums out there... <laughs> that's right. That's right. Anybody else could, could theoretically step in right now and make Ma- an offer. Maya Rudolph, this oh. is your chance right now. That's right. That's right. Uh, um, well, but, you know, that's just Hollywood, too, especially when, you know, unless like... Uh, Unless it, there's like a very unusual circumstance uh, where a book like expl- like I'm thinking of Wild, like that book exploded and then like That's right. know, the gears just move in that case. But otherwise, That's right. things get optioned. Like there are cases where books, you know, that were published 30 years ago and were optioned 30 years ago are just now getting made. I mean, it's just yeah, it's so unpredictable. But at the very least, it's super cool that um, somebody of like Kristen Wiig's talent saw something in Clown Girl. Like uh, I don't know, I just I find that she exciting. really connected with it. You know, I got to meet with her, and I was uh, surprised, but it makes sense that she really identified. Um, she expressed an identification with the main character in a big way, um, which makes sense. She's a comedian, a female, a pretty woman. You know what I mean? She kind of fits that that character. Well, yeah, but she's also. I mean. I, I don't know anything about her uh, from a personal standpoint, obviously, but I've heard that like she's quiet, you know, like mm-hmm, just bits and pieces, mm-hmm. things you hear, you know, mm-hmm, because she's mm-hmm. so she's so wacky on SNL and like so unbelievably fearless, you know, mm-hmm, like has no mm-hmm. like she has no vanity as a performer in That's a way right. in a way that like I admire so much because I think I probably do in ways that I wish I didn't. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. She can get up there and just do anything and the dancing and you know, yet off the yeah. stage, I think yeah. she's probably. Um, no one could be that way. I mean, I guess some some performers are just kind of always on, but that's that's a that's a high gear to well, stay she, in. She seemed incredibly nice when I met her. She really did. Seemed very nice. Wow. Well, that's um, that's cool. I'll keep my yeah. fing- I'll keep my fingers crossed for you. And for what it's worth, she also went to the University of Arizona. Oh, she. So did you guys have that in common? Did you did you talk about it? I didn't even mention that to her, but we did both go there. Later, I thought, oh, I should have said that. Maybe oh. she would have felt, you know really made the movie immediately then. i was gonna say that and the key <laughs> the key to developing rapport you could have like sang, that's right you could have sang the fight song together <laughs> so well, I, hope, I hope it all still works out so okay so well, this the stud book uh is, is rolling out into the world you're doing a little publicity mm-hmm. for it mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. do you and then are you are you actively working on the next thing or are you taking some time to sort of relish this moment and no go- i'm actively working on it i'm working on it right right when you called Okay, so I've interrupted you. That's okay. <laughs> You're like I was. I was in the middle of a moment of genius. It could be done by now, had we uh, not. Yeah. No, it's not. <laughs> and now I'm hunched under a ladder. <laughs> um, and then you're going to take pages to, of of the uh, book that you're working on to the Algonquin, uh, or to the writing. What's the, right, what's, right. what's the writing That's group right. called? Is there a name for it? You no, know, we don't have a name. We really need a name, don't we? I feel like you do. I don't think the Algonquin. We just call it. We just hear it. We hear it referred to as things like the most famous writing group in town, right? That's what it is. Things it might, like that. It, it might be. It's getting to the point where it might be the most famous writing group in America. I feel like this. That is, would be pretty cool. No, you know what? I'm going to make a prediction right now, just because I want to go on the record with this. Mm-hmm. I think the New York Times Magazine will eventually do a profile of that writing group if you guys well, you will know, allow it. Chelsea Kane wrote a pretty great piece. Uh, that showed up somewhere in the New York Times. I think it was maybe the back page of the book review, or I'm not sure where it was. Uh, you should look it up. Chelsea Kane's piece on our writing group. Okay. It's on. It's on two things. So it's kind of what you're talking about, but it's not exactly. But it's on um, her volunteering to work with uh, grade school kids 
on writing and then meeting with writing group. And she puts trans, you know, put, juxtaposes the two and it's pretty funny. Okay. I'll have to take a look for it. I, or I take yeah. a, I'll have to take a look at it. <laughs> at it for just, it. Look I'm, I'm going to take a look for it. Uh, <laughs> But but yeah, it's not. A, it might not be exactly the one you're predicting, which hopefully is still out there. It'd no, be cool. I, I can actually see this in my head. It's it's a huge, like I'd say, five to seven thousand word um, profile that is written by um, Steve Almond or someone like him. That'd be cool. With a uh, huge, like two page, you know, like it's going to be when you open the New York Times magazine, it, you know, the actual magazine itself. It's gonna it's gonna be a huge color photo taken by a really good photographer of the entire group uh, looking uh, just like fabulous. And why, don't, why doesn't that happen? That needs to happen right away. That would be so fun. Okay. Well, yeah. maybe I'll get on that. And if anyone listening, uh, if anyone out there is listening from the New York Times Magazine, um, right. you know, please, uh, t- please take note. And when this does happen, <laughs> I want to receive some sort of uh, a credit for predicting it. <laughs> That's right. Uh, well, listen, Monica, it's been super fun talking with you. I appreciate the time. Uh, I know that you're in the midst of writing this new book, and I, I congratulate you on the stud book, and I wish you all um, the best of luck going forward. Well, thank you for all your great questions. It's super fun. Okay, folks, there you go. <clears throat> That's it. That's the program. That is Monica Drake. Go get her novel. It's called The Stud Book, and it is available now from Hogarth. You can find her online at monicadrake.com. She's on Twitter, where her handle is uh, at Monica underscore Drake. And uh, she can also be found on Pinterest. Thanks again to Squarespace, today's official sponsor. If you need a new website or an online portfolio, look no further. Go to squarespace.com and uh, remember to enter the offer code OTHER11 for 10% off. Thanks, as always, to Kill Rockstars for all the good music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. And hey, don't forget about the app, the free official Other People app, the official app of this program. It's available now for your iPhone, iPad, iPod Touch, or Android device. It is the best and most elegant way to keep up with new episodes and to access the full archives and premium content. So please go get that if you haven't done it already. The app itself is free. Okay, it's good to be with you, as always. This was fun, it was enjoyable, and uh, I hope it was not an uneven show. I hope it was even. Or maybe I don't. Maybe I want it to be uneven because, you know, life itself is uneven. Is life even? No, it's uneven. And uh, my art reflects life, man. Do you understand that, Sweden? (laughs) I'm just holding up a, a mirror to the international community. That's all I'm doing. Please remember that Albert Einstein's estate at the time of his death was worth about $65,000 and that Billie Holiday's bank balance at the time of her death was about 70 cents, although hospital attendants found $750 taped to her leg. That is it for now. Thanks once again for being here and for giving me your attention. I appreciate it. And uh, I'm trying to be good for you. And if you want to email me, to let me know how you feel. The address is letters at otherpeoplepod.com. I love hearing from you. Otherwise, uh, you can uh, blog about the show in Swedish, or you can leave me a voicemail at the program's official website, otherpeoplepod.com. Just click on send voicemail over at the right side of your screen. All right? I'm all done. Uh, I'm out of here. Listy out. <laughs> uh, that's the first time I've ever said that. Ever in my life.
listy out. It's a horrible thing to say. (laughs) 